Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 214. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is the most famous cosmetic chemist who already works from home, Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hey, Valerie. We have a few interesting beauty questions, Perry, to cover today, including, does UV protection really work in hair? What do we think of MLM companies? Are the products better and safer? How do the Lioness and Sudden Change eye creams work? What's the difference between high-end lipstick and drugstore products? And we'll cover a little beauty science news, too, not related to COVID-19. <laughs> I know. Is there any news in the beauty industry right now that isn't uh, about the virus? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, yeah. But um, how are you holding up in the meantime? Well, you know, I've, I've stopped shaving, and it's getting very itchy. And I just discovered I don't like having a beard, so it's coming off today. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I was getting ready for bed last night, and I was like, oh, I'm getting into my pajamas. And my husband was like, how is that different from what you were wearing today? <laughs> well, I have to tell you, though, this whole social distancing, because uh, here in Chicago, we pretty much everything shut down, and you're supposed to stay in your house. But what it has made me realize is that like, it's really no different than my usual life, so, which mm-hmm, is kind of mm-hmm. depressing. <laughs> well, that's okay. Yeah, no, it's 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 nice to have my wife home all the time, so that's fun. And and we get along, which is good, you know. Not yeah. everybody does. Yeah, well, Mr. Cosmetic Chemist and I get along too, but uh, if you follow me on my personal Instagram, you'll see that uh, he has commandeered where I work from home. There's a little station uh, that I typically use, and he has taken over that. So oh, no. thanks. Now I'm, I'm banished. Luckily, I have a, a home lab, and I'm working in that room. Uh, but the Wi-Fi isn't great. And then also, I have to work in complete silence, and he can only work when Restaurant Impossible is playing, apparently. So oh. he's uh, busy binge-watching <laughs> all those seasons, and wow. uh, it's just, we have very different work styles. So looking well, see, forward I, to April 19th when we go back to work. <laughs> oh, is that is that when everything gets lifted, huh? Apparently, yeah. Well, we'll see. These are interesting times. But for why, sure. don't we, why don't we uh, head on over and talk a little bit about beauty products, huh? Yeah, we, we, uh, well, we did find one news story this week that really wasn't related to COVID. Let's talk about that. Ah, yes, this is a bit of research that might come to no surprise as followers of this show. According to a study published in the recent PLOS journal, uh, people who are more receptive to believe meaningless statements are also more likely to use essential oils. Oh, wow. That's one of the things when I uh, got, when I started following beauty products uh, on the internet and things, and I saw much more information about essential oils than I ever saw working in the industry, like the cosmetic industry, like making real products that go into stores and things. Mm -hmm. Essential oils are not something that we even think about. It's like a a marketing ingredient that you throw in there for to support a story. Oh, yeah, I would never throw an essential oil in unless it was part part of the story. The the last thing I reach for just from a, a formulation perspective, very difficult to work with. Exactly. But if you read the internet and follow beauty people on the internet, like essential oils are all these magical ingredients. Because <laughs> from my perspective, they're they're really not. Wow. Well, it, it turns out that the researchers said, 
quotes, we found that receptivity to pseudo-profound fabricated statements and religiosity were the most consistent predictors of greater use of perceived effectiveness of and a willingness to spend more money on essential oils. So let's talk about what they did. Uh, they, in the study, they, they get a group of around 1,200 people of different ethnicities and ages. The average age of this group of people was 31. Then they measured their receptivity to what they called BS. <laughs> <laughs> what does BS stand for? Or do we know what that stands for already? Just I, making sure yeah, we're on the same wavelength. Oh, oh yeah, we're on the same wavelength. <laughs> okay. So, they, so the way they tested your receptivity to BS was that they gave people grammatically correct sentences, which were completely nonsensical. So one of the examples given was, quote, imagine... Imagination is inside exponential space-time events. Uh, another, for example, is, quotes, As you self-actualize, you will enter into infinite empathy with transcending understandingness. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so these are the kind of New Age pseudo-intellectual statements that you might get from, say, Deepak Chopra or someone like that. So they, they can sound kind of profound, but they don't actually mean anything. And so they asked people, they gave them these statements, and then they asked them on a scale of zero to five, with five being the most profound, you know, what do you think of this statement? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then they collected information about the participation, participants' use and beliefs about essential oils also. And it turns out that there was a strong correlation between people who believed these nonsense statements and people who were users and big believers in essential oils and a variety of other treatments. And to give you a sense of the scale, people who scored the highest on the belief of nonsense statements were about 70% more likely to use essential oils and find them effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, essential oils are marketed as treatments for everything from psoriasis to acne to weight loss to even cancer cures and a cure for the coronavirus. <laughs> oh, my. oh my gosh. No, dangerous. I just want to. I've I, seen that too. That is so dangerous for people to say. Yeah, I just want to emphatically state essential oils are not going to protect you from any viruses, you know, don't use them. They also aren't going to cure cancer. Now, like I said, essential oils, they smell nice and, and maybe they can even alter your mood if you smell something. But there isn't much evidence that supports the overall effectiveness of essential oils. Now, I, I will say that, yes, you can find individual scientific studies where they've looked at perhaps the antiseptic nature of an essential oil or something like that. But in the way that we use them in cosmetic products, they aren't going to have those, those benefits. And a lot of the benefits claimed they really can't have in a cosmetics because a lot of the things that are claimed that they do are drug benefits. Exactly too. And I think with essential oils, and we've talked about this on the show before, a lot of the dangers of essential oils outweigh any benefits that you would have. So yeah, there, there is yeah. that challenge. So the best way to arm yourself against marketers who would have you spend a lot of money on a product that probably won't work is to just to remain skeptical. If someone is financially benefiting from you believing something that they are telling you about essential oils or products in general, you, sh you should get verification from some other uh, unbiased source that doesn't benefit financially from you believing a certain things. That way, you know, you'll be happier and you'll certainly save some more money. Exactly. 
Uh, speaking of essential oils, we do have one public service announcement to make today. Uh, last week's show, we talked about people making their own hand sanitizers, and we're certainly seeing tons of that all over social media, even the news. Um, it's amazing, and, yeah. And the whole internet on people making their own hand sanitizer. And some of them are accurate recipes, we'll call them, uh, but a lot of them are not. So I just want to go over why it's really important that you do not make your own hand sanitizer. And we'll talk about what you should be doing instead. Uh, the reason why we highly recommend to not make your own hand sanitizer is that most of the online recipes you're seeing are not accurate. Hand sanitizers are regulated by the FDA as over-the-counter drugs because an antibacterial claim is a drug claim. So there's a very specific recipe that is known to work in killing these bacteria on your hand. So when you add other things to your hand sanitizer formula, like aloe gel or essential oils, those have not been tested for effectiveness, and they can also reduce the germ-killing capability of the product. So the FDA is very strict about the recipe and the formulations, and a lot of the stuff you're seeing online will just not uh, kill the germs in the way that it's supposed to. What can happen is that like the aloe vera gel can tie up some of the alcohol and reduce the killing power of it. So you think you're getting the killer killing power of the alcohol and it's just not working. Exactly. And the FDA is recognizing that there is a shortage of hand sanitizer on the market. So what they're doing is they're not telling people, hey, at home, you can make this whatever hand sanitizer you want. They actually are allowing facilities who are not typically licensed to make hand sanitizer. They're granting them the temporary ability to make hand sanitizer, but it has to be one very specific recipe that they sent to these facilities. So you can't deviate from it. You can't add, you know, a drop of lavender oil to it. It has to be these four ingredients with the exact ingredient specification. So they're very strict about it. Uh, the other reason that it is challenging to make your own effective hand sanitizer at home is that most people don't have the right equipment or they're not good at measuring the ingredients. Um, when I know when I I know when I'm making like uh, I don't know following a baking recipe or something. It says use a cup or something. I'm like almost a cup. It's like I'm close, but I'm certainly not weighing stuff out really accurately. Yeah, with cosmetics, that's really important because yeah. the hand sanitizer recipe the FDA has monographed and put forth requires accuracy. In the lab, when we formulate, we use a scale. We measure everything in grams or kilograms, which is a weight measurement. People at home can have scales uh, to measure with. A lot of them are not uh, very accurate. Um, but a majority of people, the majority of home formulators are using volume measurements, which uh, really drive me crazy. So you won't right. consistently get the right ratios of ingredients. And if you don't get the right ratios of ingredients, you're deviating from that very specific recipe the FDA has set forth. And volume measurements are things like cups and tablespoons and, and those kinds of things. They just yeah. aren't, aren't accurate enough. Yeah. And the, the last thing is uh, when you're making your own hand sanitizer and, you know, we're not going to stop you if you want to do that, but, you know, just be very careful because it can give you a false sense of security that you're using a product that should be killing germs and it's not working as effectively as you think it does. And it may do more harm than good. So just always keep that in your mind as well. Absolutely. I just, I just don't think it's a good idea for people to be making these things, especially if they have no experience with it. Yeah. And so 
let's say the store's out of hand sanitizer and, and you really want some and, and you can't make any, or we've, you know, really changed your mind that you, you shouldn't be making any, what do you do? Well, the best thing that you can do, the very best thing that you can do is to wash your hands properly with soap and water or a hand soap or a dish detergent or a shampoo or something that has a ton of surfactants in it. Basically anything that is cleansing. Yeah. You have that big jug of shampoo that you brought home, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, we were out of hand soap and I was like, well, I have this old gallon of shampoo, a sulfated shampoo that I use to wash my lab wear. So I'll just use that. Isn't, it's it, like, in, isn't it interesting how uh, there's like a psychological hesitation to use something like shampoo for hand soap or dishwasher detergent for hand soap just because they're in you know just different bottles and they're labeled differently but the reality is these things kind of work the same way yeah they use the same chemistry i i would be hesitant about using anything for household just because the purity of ingredients is different but you can certainly use a a shampoo on your hands like a suave shampoo that's you know just pretty just a really great cleansing shampoo and doesn't have a lot of conditioning agents you could totally use that if you're in a pinch uh but it's important that it's a surfactant and that it gets foaming when you get it wet so just follow the cdc recommendations to wash your hands under rinsing water for 20 seconds. People say you can sing the happy birthday song twice, and that's definitely 20 seconds. And then last but not least, be sure to dry your hands once you rinse them clean with a towel to remove the emulsified microbes on the skin. Yeah. Hand soaps are superior to hand sanitizers because hand sanitizers don't remove things from your skin. You're not using the hand sanitizer. And then uh, wiping your hands on anything. You're just putting this alcohol on your hands. The drying your hands with a towel after you've used hand soap mechanically uh, removes stuff from the skin. Now, in using hand sanitizer, if one of those virus particles is not killed by the hand sanitizer, because you didn't physically wipe them on anything, uh, it would remain right. on your hand and you would uh, continue to have something infectious on your hand. It's so. like if it, like you use a hand sanitizer and you think you've went over your entire hand but it's very possible that you use a hand sanitizer and you miss spots oh for sure you're not most people aren't sitting there and working it through your fingers but when yeah. you wash your hands and a hand sanitizer is a, you know a three second action of right, only right. just put this on my hands uh, washing hands uh there's a reason the cdc is recommending it as the number one uh way to counteract this so I'm going to follow what the CDC says. I'm going to wash my hands. And uh, our advice to you is don't take the risk of making your own hand sanitizer. It's likely not worth it. Make your own hand soap. Right. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, the thing is, if if you're at home, you should be using soap and water. Don't use hand sanitizers. Yeah. Cool. Well, enough about that. Let's get to our beauty questions for the week. We actually had three audio questions. Wow, yeah, we're going to hear lots of different voices on this show. Yeah, if you would like to help us with social distancing and get some other voices on the show, go ahead, record your audio question on your smartphone or on your computer or however, and email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com so we can feature on the show. And we always like a little transcript if that's no trouble, but uh, it's not required, but that always helps. Well, let's play the first one. Here we go. Hi to Beauty Brains. Uh, my name is Vanessa, and I was wondering if you could help me with protecting my hair from the sun. I know I'm, I should wear a hat, but I don't always want to wear a hat. And during the summer, I always get 
damaged hair because of it. So I was wondering, I've seen some products with UV protection, but I don't know if, there's not a lot. So I was wondering if it's because it doesn't work or if there's no market for it. And I've seen some oils uh, have UV protection. So I was wondering if I could use that to protect my hair. Of course, I don't use them on my face. I use real sunscreen. But I was just wondering if I could use them on my hair. Thank you. All right, UV protection for hair. Boy, I I remember getting a lot of raw material suppliers coming in, giving lots of active ingredients. Uh, because when I formulated for hair care products, uh, trying to get a cosmetic chemist like me to incorporate UV protectants in the hair products was a big deal for suppliers. Now, I always find it interesting, but I went through this one exercise to try to quantify the damage that things do on hair. Mm -hmm. And one of the variables was that was UV damage. And, and one, actually, our experiment, we took actual hair tresses and we put them outside uh, in the sun, and we'd put them out for, I don't know, eight hours of sunlight for, for a few days. And then we would measure uh, how the combing forces and things were different like that. Mm -hmm. And it turned out I, I was it was very difficult for me to demonstrate any significant changes in the hair damage if you're just putting it out in the sun like that. And so that always that made me very skeptical that UV protection was having any significant benefit in hair. Additionally, I, I did the same kind of experiment uh, on on a red hair dyes and brown hair dyes. And you could see some change from a red hair dye if it's exposed to the light. But on the brown hair dyes, I didn't see any significant uh, differences. The real big changes in hair color loss were coming from uh, washing the hair and getting it wet, much more so than anything I'd see from UV. But what's your experience with the UV protection? Well, I would say for sure water is the biggest damager of hair and the biggest thing that's going to fade your hair color for sure. And I think that has to do with a just the nature of water being the world's best solvent, but also you know, that we shower more than we spend out in the sun. Now, yeah. that being said, if you are a person who lives at the sun, sure. uh, excuse me, who lives at the beach or is living in the sun, you're definitely going to see uh, the effects of UV on the hair. But I think that is, you have to be spending a lot of time out in the sun to do that. The challenge in measuring UV efficacy on hair is that we can't measure it like we measure UV protection for the skin from the sun. So when we're measuring UV protection on the skin, we're measuring how quickly the skin can burn. And there's, you know, very standardized tests and calculations that come up with the sun protection factor. For hair, you can't do that because there's no uh, easily measurable response on the hair-like burning. So you can't use the traditional SPF testing for that. You have to use um, other measures which aren't necessarily concrete and even um, testing facilities that have lots of experience in hair testing will say well like we we can put everything in a accelerated weathering chamber and measure right. measure the effects of sun but it's still really hard to understand how the uv is in, insulting the hair and get a measurable effect from that and equate it to something meaningful to the consumer so it's very tough and the way that we tried to measure it was that we just did a combing study. So we would take, 
we would take uh, the, the tresses, expose them to UV, and there's a combing device called the uh, diastron or instron, and it's essentially a robotic comb, and it moves the comb through the hair, and it measures the force required. And more damaged uh, tresses are going to take more force to get it through, as you know, because fibers get tangled and, and such like that. And that was the that was, it, but that's very difficult kind of research to to demonstrate, you know, really subtle differences. If there's a subtle change, you're not going to see it. If there's a significant change, you, you might see it. And the other test that we did was, you know, we'd have a panel of people feel the tresses and then rate them. And that kind of research is, is not very sensitive either. And so that was probably the biggest problem of the type of research we did to demonstrate damage from UV. Yeah, there was a a scientific team in the early 90s that said, hey, instead of SPF, let's call, make something called hair p- protection factor, HPF. Yeah. And yeah. they use similar tests to try to demonstrate UV protection efficacy on hair using the diastron and the different uh, combing methods and tensile strength and consumer yeah. panels and differential scanning calorimetry. But again, it's just very difficult to create meaningful information out of these single measurements when really like what sun does to the hair is is really complex so let's let's talk about what uv can do to the hair so there's really two different aspects to hair damage when it comes to ultraviolet light Uh, the first is the impact on hair color so it could be both um artificial hair colorants like that red hair dye, or it could be the natural melanin in the hair. Melanin, uh, you know, it's known as nature's sunscreen, but believe it or not, it doesn't actually have a lot of UV absorption capability. And when your hair is exposed to the sun, uh, the melanin molecules can acquire um, some absorbed energy, but it's actually not from the sun. It's from another amino acid present in your hair called tryptophan. And there's this theory that tryptophan, it's called a tryptophan cascade, but essentially tryptophan is the reason not only you lose your natural hair color, but you get hair damage from the tryptophan. So And, what it happened, come, and you get it from eating turkey, right? <laughs> well, you get sleepy from eating turkey, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think. Uh, anyway, so uh, basically what happens is um, the UV light will hit the hair. Tryptophan is a is a really nice uh, amino acid in the hair that has a, a lot of electrons on it, and it will absorb the UV light in your hair, and it'll get really excited, and it'll start to transfer electrons to other elements in the hair. So for example, uh, tryptophan um, will have excitation, and it will transfer electrons uh, to other molecules, to other molecules, to other molecules, uh, which will eventually transfer them to the amino acid cysteine in the hair, which is really integral as part of the hair's structure. Sure. And it will convert the cysteine to cysteic acid, which is uh, not good because your cysteine uh, disulfide bonds have broken. Um, and now you have cysteic acid in the hair. And usually that happens on on the exterior. Essentially, it's breaking down the structure, the fiber structure. Exactly. Tryptophan can also uh, get excited and transfer um, electrons to melanin, which is, again, that pigment that's responsible for the natural coloration of your hair. And it will start to degrade the melanin into a bunch of different decomposition products. So 
indirectly, melanin and cysteine in the hair are being impacted by ultraviolet light. Uh, the other thing is they think that UV light is responsible for yellowing of gray hair. So if you have gray hair and you're notice, noticing it's yellow, it doesn't necessarily directly have to do with the UV light. But again, it's that tryptophan cascade that as tryptophan is degrading under ultraviolet, uh, it can, can create these byproducts that look yellow in gray hair. So it is really, really doing something. And as far as synthetic hair colorants go, they have similar structures to tryptophan, uh, being that it's a cyclic ring structure. And they also will get excited by UV light and start to uh, decompose. And when they decompose, that's when you no longer start to see color. I think it's more obvious in shades like red. Reds are not very um, UV stable at all. Yeah. I think you notice it less in browns because brown is in terms of the visible light spectrum where color lives, you hit all of the wavelengths of visible light to the eye. So it's kind of a drab color. It's very hard to notice a shift in brown when you're hitting every wavelength of light, whereas red, you're, you know, you're not seeing any blues or greens or yellows, but you're getting a really strong peak in red. And when that shifts, you really notice that. So Wait, are you telling me that my hair color is drab? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Well, at but, least it's not gray. Well, yet. that's the term. That's the term we use. Uh, right. br- brown is drab, right? It's uh, not like a really beautiful, um, pure tone red, right? I mean, red when it is red, 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 and you don't see any underlying other elements such as blue or green. It's really beautiful and striking, and you, you turn your hair at that kind of redhead. But then. Um, when it has UV light degradation, you really notice it because it's shifting away from that vibrant color. Yeah, you're almost turning that, orange, yeah. Yep, you're losing that really sharp peak in yeah. the visible light spectrum. What with brown, you don't have any sharp peaks, so there's not a lot of vibrancy um, to notice. It's just kind of like a flat visible light spectrum. And when that shifts, you know, you can't go anywhere really from flat, so you may may not notice it as much until you have extreme amounts of um, light exposure. So I guess we're in agreement that there's damage happening in the hair, both in the color and the structure from UV. For whether, sure. Whether people notice it or not, it's that's probably a different story. But there are these products out there that claim to protect the hair. Let's talk about some of the technology that might be used. Yeah, so a lot of brands will use uh, chemical... Chemical sunscreens. I know you don't like that term, but that's that's terminology <laughs> that's, that our listeners understand. Used, yeah, yeah. Sure. so um, they tend to use those most in shampoo and conditioner, which drives me crazy because you're rinsing those away from the right. hair. Right. And I don't know how much is actually adhering to the hair. I've never seen any studies where they're able to prove that they've conjugated these sunscreen actives to the hair fiber. So if you're rinsing it off of the hair what good is that doing? You actually need the molecules. How these uh, sunscreen molecules work is instead of your hair taking the UV light, the sunscreen molecules taking the UV light. And if you're rinsing that off the hair, um, I don't know what good that is doing. If I were to formulate a product for UV protection, I would do it for sure in a leave-on. There is another really um, popular, um, we'll call it more natural. That's not a monograph sunscreen agent um, for skin, but there is a company called Crota. They make several uh, UV protection based molecules uh, based on, uh, I think it's like some derivative of 
sunflower. One of the ingredients that you'll see on your label is cinnamidopropyl trimonium chloride. Uh, and yes, yes. yeah, so they they claim that uh, protects from UVB radiation on the hair. There is another one that you'll see that's polyquaternium 59. That is one that is actually, both of those are substantive to hair because they're quaternized. And if your hair is damaged, it's negatively charged. And uh, these, the cinnamidopropyl trimonium chloride and the polyquaternium 59 will actually stick to your hair. So those are good ones to look for. Uh, but those are UV absorbers as well. And people put them in rinse off or leave on and the rinse off in this case is okay because you're getting that cationic attraction to the hair. Right. So another technology, uh, polysilicone 19. Yep. That's another uh, one. Yeah. That's our, uh, polyamide two. Yep. So there are, and, there, there are a few things that you can, you can look for. And those actually work because they're all quaternized and they stick to the hair fiber. So that's, that's the good news if you're looking for UV protection in hair. Yeah, like the standard stuff that you get in a sunscreen, they don't really have a mechanism for sticking to the hair, so they're just going to rinse out of a rinse out product. So unless it's leave-on, those aren't doing much. These cationics, they might stick around. Uh, I'd I'd still say that you'd probably get more effect with a leave-on product or a hat. But, uh, <laughs> or, well, that's where you're going to get the most effectiveness, right? Yeah. A hat, hat or an umbrella. Yeah. All right. Have we uh, have we talked about everything we have to say about UV protection for hair? Yeah. Oh, okay. How about we move on to this next question? That's not an audio question. Let's do it. This comes to us from Claire. Claire asks, is there a difference between high-end versus drugstore lip beauty products, specifically lipsticks? If so, what is the main difference? Well, I am not a lipstick user, but I do know how to make them. So I'm going to chime in <laughs> for the We're for, we're going to provide two perspectives here right. <laughs> just just in case any of you guys are worried about that. So from the technology, I can speak about the technology standpoint. If you look at the expensive products and the drugstore products, the formulas are pretty much the same. In fact, I looked at a Maybelline lipstick that costs like $3 a tube. Uh, versus a Tom Ford lipstick, which cost $55 a tube, you could essentially get them in the sh same shades. Both used the same basic ingredients. They had a wax uh, candelilla base and also a microcrystalline wax. And so the structure of the product is the same. And they both used the same basic colors. And in fact, in the US and the EU, colorants have to be approved before being put into cosmetics so everybody has access to the same colors nobody has special access to new colors so from a formula standpoint there isn't a quality difference between the expensive and the less expensive products both can be made and pretty much be made for the same uh, cost of goods raw material wise so that is to say that the folks at Tom Ford and the folks at Maybelline, they can both buy ingredients based on their volumes, probably at essentially the same price point. And so they could make the formulas essentially at the same cost. So from that standpoint of formula and expense, there really isn't much difference. Now, that doesn't mean that if you try one of the products, it's going to feel exactly the same way as the other how it performs and feels is really a personal preference. What I'm saying is that there's no reason that they couldn't be made to feel and work exactly the same. I mean, there's no special ingredients the expensive formulas have that the inexpensive ones don't. 
Yeah, I would say for sure that theoretically could be the case for sure. And I've used inexpensive lipsticks that I've loved and I've used expensive lipsticks that I've loved. And I've also used inexpensive and expensive ones that I've hated. They all have access to the same ingredients, which is Perry's point. Uh, it's the way the formulas are put together that make the difference. And at the end of the day, I think you just have to find a brand that you like. Lipstick is is very tricky because every person's lips have a different um, texture to them, whether or not you lick your lips a lot or bite your lips a lot or you know, do a lot of other stuff while you're wearing lipstick can have an impact on the longevity. So I think performance is obviously key, but I don't think price is an indicator of the performance that you're going to get. Honestly, for me, it's really been trial and error to figure out which ones have the look on my lips that I like and the longevity. It's for me, it's really trial and error. Yeah. It's, it's a personal choice. My advice always with these things Start with the least expensive one that you want to, which you feel good about buying, and then you can work your way up to the more expensive ones, and then stop when you get to a product that works good for you. Yeah, and if you're able to go to a store like Sephora or Ulta, which have a huge huge cosmetics section, you can work with one of their associates to sterilize each product and give it a try yourself um, before making a commitment, especially in the expensive ones. I would recommend doing that. Although we don't recommend doing it during these times. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, yeah, I would wait a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stay, stay, stay out of Sephora during the pandemics. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they're closed, so that's good. Oh, that is um, good. I, I guess really the biggest difference, though, since the formulas aren't the same, there probably is a significant difference in the packaging. And so some of the costs of goods that make a more expensive lipstick more expensive is maybe the packaging is better. So if that's important to you, that might be a reason to get the more expensive thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's listen to our next audio question. Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Laura from Chicago. I am 50 years old and have fine lines under my eyes. I have found two products that seem to work okay. One is by Lioness and the other is by Sudden Change. When I apply either product, it feels like super glue. And it seems to work okay, but what is the ingredient that is making it feel like super glue? Thanks a lot. Love your show. An audio question from Instagram. Wow, look at that. Yeah, the, you can send uh, voice messages in Instagram. It was a little tricky getting it out of Instagram, but Laura, thank you so much for the question. I wasn't sure exactly which uh, products under the brands that you were referencing, so I just looked up their standard issue eye serums. Um, from Lioness and Sudden Change and uh, looked at the ingredients there for you, which we are going to post on the webpage that we have so that you yeah. guys can can look at the actual ingredient listing. So the first product was the Lioness Amber Eye Serum, which has uh, a lot of ingredients in it, including some peptides, which we've talked about over the last few episodes. I think it's come up a couple times, uh, which peptides have some pretty substantial testing on anti-aging or hair growth, depending on what the peptide is and, uh, depends on how much you're using. And then, um, you know, of course how they're put together. Yeah. Yeah. How they're put together. And, uh, you know, in vitro testing is not always indicative of in vivo 
testing. But uh, anyway, this uh, Lioness Amber Eye Serum does have peptides. Uh, but what would give it the super glue type nature and uh, longevity on the under eye? Well, that would be things that are maybe hygroscopic or sticky in nature, as well as film forming. When you can form a film on the skin, it remains a little bit attached to the skin and you can get some longevity out of it. So the thing that I would say has the biggest impact on film forming in the Lioness Amber Eye Serum is sodium polystyrene sulfonate. That is an excellent uh, film former biopolymer supplier. I actually really love it in hair for thermal protection, uh, but you can get really nice um, films on skin, skin as well. The other film former in here would be the hydrolyzed wheat protein, and then you also get um, some film forming and humectancy from the sclerodium gum and the sodium hyaluronate. Yeah, good old hyaluronate, uh, you know, hyaluronic acid type, and that being a, um, a humectant, it's going to uh, absorb water, and that can add to the stickiness feeling too. Exactly. Now, the Sudden Change Under Eye Firming Serum is a completely different formula. It has about a third of the ingredients that Lioness Amber Eye Serum does, which isn't a bad thing. It also might not be a good thing. I don't know. Uh, it depends on the performance. Uh, but the main ingredient complex in here that is giving it that super glue type feeling is a trio of ingredients, serum albumin, hyaluronic acid, and dextran sulfate. And this ingredient is a is a three-part polymer sold by a brand. Um, serum albumin is not the correct inky name. It should just be um, albumin. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it is a three-part biopolymer that is proven by the supplier through testing. Of course, to, of course. Yeah. <laughs> through the supplier, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it obviously to, has a, an impact if you're feeling it, uh, f- feeling like it's leaving a film on your skin. Yeah, for sure. And the dimethicone copolyol also contributes to that. But going back to this polymer, which I think is probably the real star of the formula, given uh, there's not much else in it except a chelating agent, a preservative, and a solvent, um, this polymer that they use, uh, the supplier says, helps to physically lift wrinkles to smooth the skin, to give a soft focus effect, to optically reduce the appearance of wrinkles, and moisturizes the skin. So it's doing that by forming a film over the skin to smooth over wrinkles and kind of straighten them out a little bit. That's a temporary effect. And then also moisturizing the skin through hyaluronic acid, which Perry mentioned, uh, is highly attractive to water and can absorb, depending on the the size, up to a thousand times its weight in water. So is that really working? I think so. Yeah. It's going to be temporary though, but that will also lead to the to the sticky feel because these film formers are kind of sticky until they dry because they need to form the film in. The molecules need to stick to each other. Products like these always remind me of like when I was in grade school and I would take glue and put it on the back of my hand and let it dry. Yeah, it's like because <laughs> it did kind of similar. Feel that tight, it did feel that tightness. I mean, essentially, it's the same kind of technology right you have this film and then when it stays on your skin it starts to shrink and that shrinking is what gives you that tight feeling yeah Yeah. this is just a more elegant way to put glue on the back of your hand yeah (laughs) i don't recommend putting glue on your under so don't do that but (laughs) we're just saying it's like kind of same z's yeah exactly same kind of technology (laughs) <laughs> all right, now that we've now that we've told people to put glue all over themselves, so do the last question. Yeah, let's do it. Another audio question. 
Hi, my name is Meredith, and I had a question for the Beauty Brains podcast. I love the podcast, by the way. I know you talked about possibly discussing multi-level marketing. I am a military spouse, and I'm inundated by multi-level marketing companies claiming to sell safer products. Uh, brands like Beauty Counter talk about all the terrible things that are in other products and how their stuff is somehow better. This is especially annoying because a couple years back when my daughter, who was doing really well, uh, had cancer, I had another military spouse try to sell me these products claiming that they would make my family safer. So my question is, how do you recommend I respond? Um, what Do you have any quick evidence-based responses that um, could gently explain why I don't want to buy these products and why I think the marketing in particular is a problem? So thank you again. Love the podcast. Oh, Meredith, MLMs, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> Someday maybe we'll do a whole show on MLMs, but uh, I hesitate to because I don't have a lot of great stuff to say about them. Um, but let's talk about this question. Are the uh, MLM brands that claim their products safer, are they really safer? The, the, the quick answer here is no. These products are not safer. Um, in the United States and around the world, really, uh, cosmetic companies are required to follow regulations. And the number one rule is it, it's illegal to sell unsafe products. So the stuff that you can get at Target or the stuff you can buy through Amazon, well, maybe Amazon, uh, the, certainly anything that you're getting from big companies has been proven safe. And they're, they're as safe as anything that you'd get from an MLM product. So these products products that you might get from a company like Beauty Counter, as you mentioned, they're not safer than the stuff that you can get from Procter & Gamble or Unilever or L'Oreal. Again, we have access to all of the same ingredients. We're all chemists. Uh, you know, we're, we're formulating the way formulators formulate. The physical product piece from a safety perspective isn't any different. The laws are still the same. They're not following some other law that you know, other brands are not following. Uh, the only difference I would say is maybe these MLMs, you know, they try to come up with their own unique uh, brand positioning and maybe they'll have these restricted lists. You know, some of them don't. Uh, but from a physical product perspective, we're all using the same stuff. Right. And I look at the way that the products get made. A big company and even a medium-sized company that's not MLM they're going to have in-house chemists who are formulating their products. Well, some of the big MLMs, and it's arguable whether they are or not, but places like Mary Kay and Avon, they actually hire chemists. I, I know a lot of the chemists who work there uh, to make their formulas, and they make good products, right? They can mm -hmm. make products just as good as the big guys because they really are big guys. But it doesn't take a lot to start up an MLM, and so a small startup is not going to have chemists. They're not going to have their own in-house formulas even. They typically will hire a contract manufacturer, and contract manufacturers work on you know, all kinds of different products, but it's not going to be a specialized product. They're going to get what the contract manufacturer gives them, and maybe they'll have some direction of like what ingredients that they want to feature that they put in there. But there's nothing special about the products that are made for these smaller MLMs that should warrant you spending a lot more money on them and believing that they're going to work better or that they're safer. Yeah. 
for sure. Now I look at, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the MLM uh, model specifically because it, it, there really is the, the whiff of like a pyramid scheme that goes on in a lot of these things. And if you look, according to research done by the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, 99% of people who sell for MLMs are going to be losing money. So that's really only 1% of people who are out there selling products are actually turning a profit. Now, my mom actually bought, um, I, I remember there, a lady would come to our house you know, maybe once a month or so, and they would sit and chat, and my mom would buy some products from her, but she never convinced my mom to sell the products, and so she she must have been doing okay, um, but as long as you, I mean, the products are going to be fine, but I would not recommend that, unless you have a particular penchant for sales, uh, that you take on one of these MLM jobs. I mean, if you want to start your own beauty product line, it, it, it would you have a much better chance of turning a profit if you are going to just start the line yourself. You can contact the contract manufacturer, get a run of it, start your own beauty brand, and uh, distribute it too. So I'm not a big fan of this MLM uh, business model per se. Yeah, it certainly takes a special individual with a lot of uh, independent initiative and kind of like working for yourself really. And not a lot of people have that the ability to do that successfully, which I think is partially why um, the success rate is so low. And additionally, in order to really profit yeah. and make a ton of money, you have to get a big team under you. So, um, For not sure. to say you can't, you can't do it. I think a lot of people are doing it really well. And I know a lot of people have made their careers in retirement working for MLMs, but it's, it's not a vast majority of the population. And, but the products are fine. I actually know a couple of chemists. Right. Uh, I employ a chemist who worked for an MLM and uh, they really did make great products and they had very strict rules and all that kind of stuff. But um, not all of them are the same. Um, and I do know a couple MLMs who use contract manufacturers that I would I would never touch with a 10 foot pole. So <laughs> right. it's, so it's it's really it's, tough to pick through that as a consumer for sure. It's tough to know. So what evidence can we provide for a reason not to buy? It's just that these products are more expensive often. Um, the business model, if you, you don't want to get roped into that business model unless you're a special type of salesperson and you can get perfectly good working products uh, out at the stores. So there's really no advantage to these MLM derived products. Yeah. But if you happen to like the products that your um, representative is selling, go ahead and buy them perfectly safe. Yeah. Uh, and just be very clear you're not interested in selling if you don't want to become part of their team that's shaped like a pyramid. <laughs> that's a little pyramidish. Maybe it's more, yeah. of, a, maybe it's more yeah. of a cone, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, but all joking aside, if, if you do like the products, there are a couple, for example, Arbonne products I really enjoy. Um, and I, I'm more than happy to buy them. Uh, from this lady that sells them and support her. I hate their her. marketing, though. They, their marketing's terrible. But you know, I, they have they have great products, though. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I'm happy to support yeah. the lady. Yeah. But oh, I yeah, do sure, know that sure. they're a little expensive, and um, you know, I, I can get other products that I like too. So, yeah, absolutely. Figure out what works for you guys. But um, anyway, I think that brings us to the end of this show. Thanks for Already? listening. Already? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for listening. If you get a chance, could you go over to the iTunes and leave us a review? That will help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. We love to answer audio questions, so don't forget to send us that audio question by email if you can. 
Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at the Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're at the Beauty Brains, and we have a Facebook page. And the Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. That helps uh, keep the show ad-free. And now that we've bashed all the MLM companies, they don't want to advertise with us either. <laughs> but some of them are very good. We just, oh, we just you know, we personally don't recommend it. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so if you like what we're doing and you want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. And don't forget, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Now cue the cats. Oh, the real cats. Kittens. <laughs>